Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, and you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. again to all of our listeners. Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. Every week, Mark Lindsay and I visit with you and discuss trending topics in the wine world. And how are you this week, Mark? I'm good, Kim. And I'm good. always excited to talk wine with you. And I know. We like to fights, you know, so touch on a whole like bunch it. of different stuff sometimes. Yeah. We, I'm sure, you know, I'm hoping our listeners enjoy the conversation and we always try to find some different things and exciting and new and hopefully we'll do that again today. That's right. And if you ever have questions or comments or topics that you would like us to chat about on the, the wine show, please us a comment on our Facebook page, The Wonderful World of Wine, and we hope to maybe get to some of those more special questions that you all might have. So the first article we have today is from Wine Enthusiast. We do seem to do a lot of articles from wine enthusiasts because they do tend to talk an awful lot about sort of trending topics uh, in the wine world, which we like to stay on top of. Um, and this concerns vegan wines and how can you add fertilizer that might have manure in it to vegan vineyards, vineyards that are destined to become vegan wines? Kind of where is that line to be drawn? So I thought that this was sort of an interesting, almost sort of thought exercise. Yeah. <laughs> talking about Those vegan things wines. you never think. This is I something know, I, I never I like, even oh, considered. You can't so, use animal-based manure. All right. Yeah. So just briefly, we've talked many in the past, what makes a wine vegan and not vegan. If people who are vegans out there, any animal products used or that touch wine would make the wine a non-vegan wine. And many times you cannot find out if a wine is vegan friendly or not. And there's these websites out there, Kim, and apps to find out if your beer or liquor or wine is is vegan friendly, but they're so outdated. For our listeners, it all depends on a vintage. So every year a wine could be made differently by the winemaker. So they might have to use an animal product to filter it or do something to the wine. So you have to check each year if the wine, and many times I'll ask the winemakers themselves before I will put on my shelf that it's a vegan friendly wine. So what's your take been lately on vegan wines, Kim? You know, I think kind of what you just said, it's sort of hard to tell. I think the most useful information is what is put on the label. So I think that if winery has gone so far to label as to label their wines as vegan, that that kind of is the most trustworthy thing or on their website, because they're, it's not like an organic certification. There's nothing, there's no regulatory body that is coming in and saying, you're your stuff is vegan. Your stuff is not vegan. You really have to trust the producers and trust what they're telling you. So it is, if that is your lifestyle, it, it, it is a little bit hard, I think, to really trust that you know what you're getting. Some producers do put a little vegan friendly yes. symbol, but it's like you said, it's not regulated. So I, I get kind of nervous, I guess. But I mean, if they're putting it on, you would think they're promoting it and it's, it's true, but there is no governing body checking that it's true. Right. So uh, like a organic where it says USDA organic, the government is checking and making sure they're following the rules, but nothing for, for vegan. And it, vegan does not mean 
organic in any way. So right. for our listeners, it just don't means, confuse it. Yeah. No animal products, no animal byproducts, nothing, nothing like that. So the article brought up manure. So obviously it's a crop and grapes and the farmers will put manure in the vineyards to help the, the grapes grow, but it's coming from animals. So there's talk saying, how can you say your wine is vegan if there's animal manure touching the grapes? So I've never thought of this, Kim, ever thought of this, but it makes sense. And then it goes the next level of saying, okay, well, if manure is no good for vegan products, then you shouldn't be using any other animal products in the vintage. And maybe you shouldn't even be using animals to harvest or do any work in the vineyards. So it just got crazy. What what do you think about using the animal, like using a horse for a plow or in the vineyard? Would you think vegans would be against that? I think it depends on the vegan. I mean, (laughs) we always get. I I am not. I mean, uh, yeah, this is not a lifestyle that I follow. I don't want to make any value judgments on people who do follow this lifestyle. It's not mine. I don't see any problem with having chickens in your vineyard to eat the bugs, but some people probably do. Look, I'm a beekeeper. A lot of vegans won't eat honey because they feel you're exploiting the bees in order to get the honey. I don't feel like I'm exploiting my bees. Uh, (laughs) I feel like I'm husbandering them so that they grow and live because they can't live in the wild. So I feel like this is not a judgment call that I can make. And if certain people have a hard time with there being any animals around any of the products that they eat, then they have to do their research and make their own decisions as to whether or not they want to be consuming those things. So the alternative for using manure would be to just let cover crops grow to make the, the ground fertile. Is that, yeah. that kind or of what you took? Compost, things yeah. like that. Because most compost actually does not have animal products in it. I have a couple composts in my backyard. Yeah. And you're specifically told not to put any fats, any bones. I don't even think that you're supposed to put eggshells in. So it's it's fairly easy to get animal-free compost. So they, they talked about the manure. They talked about animals being used in the vineyards. Then they talked about bones. So in biodynamic farming of grapes, there is a procedure where they take cow horns, mm-hmm. stuff it with manure, and then plant it in the ground. So they're saying the bone- That would absolutely not be vegan. Right. And, and I never <laughs> thought of that. So there's a lot of this biodynamic-grown vineyards that we're now saying vegan should not go near that either. And biodynamics is another level of, you know, organic farming out there. And they're saying because the bone or the, the horn from the animal and the blood could still be on the horn. And now it makes it totally, and I never thought of that, and, <laughs> but it makes sense, right? It makes sense. It's out there, but it makes sense. So now it's, I'd have to ask a a winemaker, not only are they using any animal products in the winery when they're making the wine, but are they using anything in their vineyards? So I could really be 100% sure it's vegan friendly for my And you're only going to get that information if it's a winery and a vineyard that really has hands-on. A farmer. A farm. Yeah. You know, people who walk the fields, who knows what's going on. We're not talking about a million cases wineries here. This is going to be, yeah, this is going to be more expensive, a lot of hands-on work uh, at the winery. So 
Wow. Yeah, I think if people need this extra level of reassurance that there are no animals whatsoever involved in the production of the grapes, it might be a little bit harder for them to find that information out. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can hear us every week here on Franklin Radio, WFPR 102.9 FM. You can find our past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. If you want to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at finitaswineworks.com. For more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. Next, Kim, we want to talk to our listeners about what I think is probably one of the best stories to tell people in the wine world and we're always big on storytelling in, in wines and this one from italy i think is the classic story to tell when you're talking about italian wines especially the tuscan region and chianti and if you noticed every once in a while well all the time i shouldn't say every once in a while can we pick up a italian chianti classico there's this little black rooster on the bottle how long do you remember going back him seeing that do you remember forever yeah yeah <laughs> like always and and it's, it's one of those things it's it's almost like really smart marketing on the part of the consortium of, of Chianti producers because sometimes people won't remember the name of the wine but they'll remember the rooster and yeah. it's great <laughs> because people will be like I want that wine with the with the little rooster on it like yeah. And the Italians have been marketing themselves going way back to the 1700s where they thought and said, these are the special zones we need to focus on, we need to protect. And the rooster symbol is just the statement for Chianti Classico region okay. in, in Tuscany. So you want to tell the story to our listeners, Mark? Tell us yeah. the legend. Well, this is my take. What I've always heard is... You have a, to define the classico, the classic, the historic region for Chianti. They had to set a, a boundary. And it's all over Italy. It's pretty common that every little town or province, they no one gets along over there, Cam. And you, you experience <laughs> it, right? They, they're right. neighborly, but they hate their neighbors. So you had the north region, Florence, and the south region, Siena, and they were fighting over the regions of boundaries. So they came up with an agreement that they would have riders leave their village at the same time. And where they met is where would be the boundary. So how were they going to know when to start was based on when a rooster would crow, right? Is this what you heard mm -hmm. so far? Yep. All right. So Sienna in the, the South, had a white rooster and they fattened him up so much so he'd wake up for, for more food. Because he's hungry. He's hungry. He's got fat. He needs more food like me. And <laughs> in, in Florence in the north, they had a black rooster and their take was, we're going to starve this rooster. So he's going to wake up wicked early because he's so hungry. And he did. So their rider left way before the south and obviously they claimed more area. So the black rooster, which they call in, in Italian the Gallo Nero, would became the symbol of the region. And I think officially it was like 2013 or 2011 in that area where officially. So every bottle from the classical region has to have that black rooster, usually on the neck of the mm -hmm. bottle. Yeah, it's usually like wrapped right around the neck of the bottle. So that is why you see the 
the black rooster. And, and uh, listeners are probably thinking, you know, all Chianti's the same, but it is not. So the, the classical Chianti's have to have 80% of the Sangiovese grape. And the regular Chianti region only has to have 70% of mm-hmm. the Sangiovese grape. So different quality, different villages, different soils. Right. There's the argument that this is the more classic area where Chianti is originally from. So the special soils there lead to more this traditional style, more what Chianti should should all be about. And there are, how, how many villages are there? Number seven? It's the Classico is nine, nine. And Chianti is seven. Okay. So there's, a, I've talked to, I mean, many Italian friends who they won't even touch Chianti. They'll, or the the uh, straw basket Chianti <laughs> stuff. They they only want Classico. I don't know. Okay. What's your experience with comparing when you drink a regular Chianti to the Chianti Classico? Do you have a preference? Um, I usually do opt for Classico if I have that opportunity. There are some, I mean, there are differences between the different villages. I do find that they are fairly subtle. I kind of like the ones from the South, uh, the ones from around Siena personally, but there, you know, there's, there's a lot out there. There's a lot of variety. I don't necessarily feel like people should limit themselves only to to Classico. I, I think that there is enough good quality Chianti out there that's not Chianti Classico, especially if you're talking about Reserva levels, that there are good bottles out there from all of those places. Yeah. And th- that term, just so our listeners know, that Classico is an Italian term that can be used in any region in Italy. And it just means it's a more historic or recognized region for, for that grape, for, you know, towns. And, and so it's, it's in other areas too, Orvieto, Classico, you'll see. So just for an example, Chianti to me, when you're looking on a retail shelf or in a restaurant, they'll say regular or Classico. If they're the same price, I'd go with the Classico all day long. Mm-hmm. If, if two Absolutely. things are yeah. I yeah, mean, often so. with Chianti that doesn't have a classical designation, you know, you're looking at a little more kind of everyday drinking wine, maybe a little more bulk wine. So sometimes if you are looking for something a little more special, go up and look for that classico designation. And like I said before, you know, that reserve a level, um, yep. you'll get a little more aging, a little more oak, a little higher quality. So there are varying levels, just like there are in, you know, many, many other regions of the world. But this is that area that has so much history and so much tradition. And honestly, the wines just sort of keep getting better. There were changes that took place in a few decades ago. I would say it was probably what in the 1960s, the 1970s, when they really stopped using white grapes. They paid a little bit more attention to the aging and to the quality of the grapes. So we got some really good quality Chianti Classico out there now. Yeah, that's a good point. The Classico region no longer uses white grapes and the the regular Chianti region does use a small percentage of white grapes too. So they felt it better quality. Well, they can, they don't have to. They, they don't, it's not, yeah, it's not required to be used. So that's the story of the uh, black, the rooster black rooster on the Chianti bottle. It's one of those good bar stories to tell your friends and we hope you <laughs> enjoyed it. And when you look at that rooster on the bottle and drinking your uh, Chianti and having your macaroni, think of us and how you learn that story. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim and Mark. You can find more information about Mark at franklinliquors.com. 
and more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. And as always, you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. The next bit of information that we wanted to bring to you today, something that I feel like is very important for during the summer months when your house might be a little bit warmer, if you don't have the air conditioning on, or if you're uh, hosting some people outside, three tips to achieve the perfect serving temperature for your wine, because we always want to drink wine at the right temperature. So um, as we know, different styles of wine are best served sometimes at different temperatures. And there were some good tips and hints here, Mark, for how we can always be at the spot where we are drinking our wine at the right temperature. Yeah, this is something we always try to give some tips on. And one of the things I always like to talk about is in the past, they say, you know, serve this wine at room temperature, serve this wine chilled at a certain temperature. And just to clarify, when the whole kind of rules of temperature and wine was made, the room temperature was a lot different than room temperature mm-hmm. today. So right. Room yeah, temperature it's, it's European wine. Is, it's European yeah. room temperature. It's not American household. It's room not American. <laughs> my family temperature at seventy degrees. So this was you know fifties, fifty five, sixty was room temperature. So if you ever see that term room temperature, don't think it's the American seventy degree room temperature. Right. Yeah, it's closer to like sixty two or like you said sixty. So you may be drinking your red wine a little bit warmer than maybe it would be for showing its best. That's not to say that if you want to drink it a little warmer, go ahead. We're not here to tell you you're right or you're wrong, but it might show itself to be a little bit more pleasant if you were to drink it just slightly cooler. So Do let's you... just give the recommended ranges, and yeah. then we can discuss some other. Sure. Thanks. And we so, don't expect yep. anybody to have a ther- thermometer designated right. for testing wine. I don't know the last time I took the temperature Measure of the my temperature. wine, <laughs> whether you it's don't. in a bottle or in a glass. I'm not even sure I ever have done it. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, I, it's more you know, of you a, mentioned that, Kim. It's more of a, do I need to just put it in the fridge? Like how long yeah. has it been in the refrigerator? You know, it's not, it's not a matter of using, using a thermometer. That's a good point because I have bought so many gadgets. They had at one time they had like labels you could put on the bottle uh-huh. that measures the temperature. I bought thermometers you could stick in to measure. I have the I have one of those and Never I don't used know that it, I've right? ever used yeah, it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I'm like, why did I buy this gadget? I don't. What do I care? It's cold. It feels good to me, right? But you're right. So are they talking about now when they recommend, so first we'll just say they recommend light, dry, white, rosé and sparkling 40 to 50 degrees. So if my fridge is between 40 and 50 degrees, I'm okay, right? Are we we talking about the actual measurement of the liquid of the wine? Well, I mean, eventually if your refrigerator is at 42 degrees. It's going to be it, in your, that range, your wine's right? going to get to 42 degrees. Okay. So, yeah. that's so, so we don't really need to measure <laughs> nope. and use those devices. That's, nope. that's right. And some people do that. keep little thermometers inside their refrigerator or their freezer so that they know, Double you know, check. kind of that safe eating, safe, safe storage temperature. So yeah, I think 40, 50 is a little warm for a fridge. I think some or most manufacturers recommend that sort of high 30s, low 40s for the temperature in your fridge. So if your fridge is in that range, if it's on the colder side, maybe take your white wines out of the fridge for a few minutes. But honestly, if you pour it at that temperature, within a couple of minutes, it's going to warm up in your glass anyway. So even if your refrigerator is 
37, 38 degrees, you're totally fine. <laughs> like You're totally fine taking your so wine out of the fridge and a, pouring yourself a glass. It's a great point because all of the temperatures we're going to talk about are not typical to refrigerator. They're more typical <laughs> by a specialty wine uh, chilling device or wine refrigerator yeah. that you can set this temperature range. So that 40 to 50 for your rosé, dry whites and sparkling, you'll be pretty close in the fridge once it sits out for a little bit. Yeah. But then if you move to the full body whites or light fruity reds, they're saying now it should be between 50 and 60. So putting on your counter, it's going to be 70. You should give it a little bit of a chill. So you might not want to put it in that fridge overnight. Just that little chill in the fridge quick to drop it 10, 20 degrees to get it to that 50 to 60. Half and an hour. Yeah. Half an that, hour is so fine. That's yep. That was one of the things I want to ask you about because yeah. over the years I heard 30-30 rule, the 20-20 rule. You, you say 30 minutes? I say 30 minutes. Yeah. See, yep. now I used that tip the other day on my daughter. She wanted to drink a sparkling wine that was warm. I said, put it in the fridge and like 20 minutes later, she's ready to take it out. No. I'm saying, no, 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 you no, no, go, no. To, go 30 minutes, right? Even that. For, for a room temperature white to get it down to drinking temperature? It was not long enough. Has no. To be, has to be a while. Put it in the freezer for an hour. Wow. Freezer <laughs> tip. Oh, I never. Oh, <laughs> never. Oh, all the time. Well, where I was going, it was 30, 30 minutes and I popped the sparkling. It was exploded all over the place because yeah, it was not way too warm. chilled enough. But I think that 30 minutes to chill down your red to get it to red wine drinking temperature is fine, but you need hours in the fridge for your whites. If your white wines are room temperature or your rosés are room temperature and you want to get those cold enough to drink hours. Yeah, a so, couple hours. So how about this then? If you have a room temperature light red, I put it in my fridge and I forget it. Do you think 20, 30 minutes on the counter after you take it out is good before you serve it as a rule mm. or it needs longer. To Might need a little longer. But again, like I said before, you know, if you pour that, it will warm up faster if it's in your glass. See those. I, that's where I think these 20, 30 minute rule things never. They never. There's so many bought this. Yeah. Or if it's that. Yeah, I know. And that's kind of where I was going with that. And it's like, I mean, and this is not an exact science. You know, this is horseshoes get it close to that temperature it doesn't and it's recommended because that's usually where that one shows the best right right? i mean so and then they move to full body red or a fortified like port they're saying that would be 60 to 65 degrees is the optimal temperature to serve it and we always go back and forth can when we hold events i like to pour and let whites get a little warm and you like to have them a little colder when mm-hmm. they serve and it it there's a couple of things that you can benefit from if you have it a little warmer and a couple of things you can benefit having it a little colder as well but these are what they're saying we'll show the absolute best temperature. So it's not to say that, you know, if you like your whites a little colder, you're like your whites a little warmer, that you shouldn't be drinking them. Drink what you drink it. Just throw an ice cube in. Recommendations, right? (laughs) Right. We're just saying best practices so that we're thinking that this is where the wines will show their best, but um, that it's not necessarily us telling you there is a right or a wrong. Yeah, overall... If it's too cold to me, it kills aroma and flavor. It's just, mm-hmm. it's all you taste is cold water, you know, wetness. And if it's too hot, it really highlights alcohol and bitterness. So that's my take on Yeah. If you know it's not tasting right, it's probably either too hot or too cold. And that's where these ideal temperatures yeah. would make it 
be a much better tasting experience. Yeah. For me, the, it, the too warm thing is worse than the too cold thing, especially, you know, if you're the wine in your glass is over 70 degrees, that's when the alcohol starts evaporating. So it's going to be more boozy. And I'm particularly sensitive to noticing when alcohol is higher and when maybe that is causing it to taste a little bit out of balance in my mouth, or if I can actually, you know, sort of smell that evaporating alcohol. So I feel like drinking it too warm knocks it out of balance. Whereas if it's too cold, you know, I'm not going to notice all of the flavors, but I would much rather have a too chilled wine than a too warm wine. Yeah. This in the summertime, it's kind of tough for a wine drink. If you pour your wine inside, you go out. Mm-hmm. If you have a white that's yeah, chilled, that's just true. sweating all over you, right? If you have a red. <laughs> and that does happen. It's like, oh, yeah. your wine glass is the just glass like glass is just dripping. turning into, yeah, like your ice cream's melting. My, my wine's <laughs> melting. And then if it's a red, it heats up so fast, you're, you're just disappointed that you're drinking red on a hot day. So <laughs> I, I don't know. We haven't come up with a solution for that yet. Wine but, bucket. Just keep yeah, a wine bucket. <laughs> just keep it, keep it in a hose, right? Anything else on temperature, Kim? No. Perfect serving I think we're good. There's no, there's no perfect, but uh, the refrigerator is your friend. But you're right that it is a little bit harder in the summertime. But what was the it, mm-hmm. serving suggestions in the restaurant industry for temperature? What did you tell staff? Was it just a range or did you say always? It was just a keep- range and it was yeah. very, very similar to this range. And often what we did was we would have everything already chilled down in the Uh, coolers and the coolers were temperature controlled. Frankly, it was more important for the beer to be at a colder temperature than the wine. You can always stick a bottle of wine in an ice bucket to bring it down to temp uh, if your red is a little too warm or whatnot. But it's harder with beer because then if the kegs get warm, then they get all foamy. So we focused a little bit more on coolers being too cold. And then if the wines were a little bit too cold, then they would just come up to temperature after we poured them. Have you ever heard of a story or experienced where someone has been in a restaurant and sent something back because of temperature. I can never recall. I know that I've asked for ice buckets, even for a red wine. But because it was served to you too warm or because you knew you were going to, you were going to drink it during the meal. Because it was served to me too warm. Really? Yeah. It was a Pinot Noir or a Beaujolais. It was a a lighter style red. um, And it was frankly too warm when I received it. So I asked for an ice bucket for the red wine and the looks that I got. Uh, Why? (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's a good tip because, you know, people should know that they can do that. Yeah. You might get some funny looks if you do it, you know, if you ask to chill down your Pinot Noir. But I was like, no, I know what I'm doing. Same so with sometimes just open, a little bit of confidence goes a long way. Once open, you can request to, to keep it chilled sure. in some sort of bucket too. Sure. So don't be afraid to ask for that. And a lot of good restaurants will do that for the for your white wines anyway. They'll bring a an ice bucket over so that you can keep your whites cold or your champagne, you know, anything like that. Thank you for joining us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can hear us every week right here on Franklin Radio, WFPR 102.9 FM. You can find our past episodes on SoundCloud or iTunes. Any questions or comments, please check out our Facebook page, The Wonderful World of Wine. We always post a lot of follow-up articles, plus the articles we talk about. And you can find information about Kim on her website, Vinitas Wineworks, myself on franklinliquors.com. Cheers. <music>